God in heaven. I pray now that in this hour, you would help me to explain from your word just how great King Jesus is. And Lord Spirit, I pray that you would impress upon the listeners, press upon all gathered here, just what a great king Jesus is and what he is worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Christmas, when you really think about it, it's a surprisingly popular holiday. No holiday in America is as widely or as extravagantly celebrated. In some ways, this is not surprising because, well, most Americans still identify themselves as Christians one way or another. Our culture frequently, or our culture has a large set of nostalgic Christmas traditions and songs. And if you're a business owner, Christmas is a great time for making money. But in a more fundamental way, Christmas popularity is very surprising because Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Considering who Jesus claimed and demonstrated himself to be, concerning what Jesus taught concerning sin and salvation, concerning what the Bible teaches regarding Jesus' future return to earth and what he will do, most people in America and around the world would not like Jesus at all if they really knew him. And they would not want to celebrate his incarnation. To many, the full truth regarding Jesus is passed over during Christmas for the image of the baby in the manger. On Christmas, Jesus is just a well-behaved baby boy born on a sleepy night in Bethlehem. Jesus is not demanding or threatening. He's just a good baby. After all, he came to bring peace and happiness to the earth. There's nothing to fear from Jesus, right? Well, if we think that way, if people think that way, that is a dangerously incomplete picture of Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who actually is, he deserves and demands your full obedience and worship. And to those who refuse these demands, God himself promises the most terrifying consequences. Really, if you misunderstand who Jesus is this Christmas, well, not only will you miss out on the true joy of the season, but your very soul is in danger. You need, we need, a full picture of Jesus to respond to him in a way that is desperately necessary for us. And that way is to do homage to the Son. Do homage to the Son. That's the title of our Christmas theme sermon today. Do homage to the Son. And to explain what that means and why you absolutely must do this, let's examine a prophecy about Jesus in Psalm 2. So if you please take your Bibles and open to Psalm 2, or if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, turn to page 552, and we're going to look at this together. <coughs> Psalm 2, page 552 in the Pew Bible. As you turn there, allow me to give you some brief background on this psalm. The psalms in total, they are a collection of Holy Spirit-inspired worship songs, poems, and prayers that were used during the days of the kingdom of Israel and afterwards. The author of Psalm 2 
is not stated. But Acts 4.25 in the New Testament identifies the author as David. King David, the one-time sheep-tending youth whom God raised up to be the anointed ruler of Israel. Now Psalm 2 is about one's attitude to God's king, the Messiah. Really the title Messiah, it just means anointed one, equivalent to the term Christ in Greek. And this refers to the anointing with holy oil that the kings of Israel would receive before they became king, marked out as God's ordained and specially empowered ruler. Now, while aspects of this psalm apply to David, its original author, who was a Messiah, an anointed king of Israel, and aspects of this psalm apply to Solomon and to all of David's seed, this psalm was ultimately about the king, the anointed king who was to come, to come, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only Messiah who fully fulfills the words of Psalm 2, as the books of Acts, Hebrews, and Revelation in the New Testament additionally confirm. So let's hear what David prophesies in this psalm regarding Jesus, the coming Messiah. Please follow along as I read Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that is Yahweh, against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Beautiful psalm. This psalm is an exhortation to submit to, to serve, and to rejoice in God's Messiah King who is Jesus. The psalmist says, those who persist in rebellion against the Messiah will be destroyed, while those who repent and submit to Messiah will be saved and protected. In this psalm, King David, led by the Holy Spirit, presents three reasons why you must do homage to God's Son. Three reasons why you must do homage to God's Son. And I want to look at those reasons together with you. The reasons appear in verses 1 to 9, and then there's an exhorted response in verses 10 to 12. So let's look at the first reason to do homage. Number one, the world rebels against God's good Messiah. The world rebels against God's good Messiah. Let's reread verses 1 to 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice the terms nations and peoples in verse 1. David the psalmist says, Whole nations, vast amounts of people all over the world, are in uproar. They are in tumult. They are raging. They are frantically trying to find a solution to an extremely irritating problem. And what's that problem? The Lord's anointed. The Messiah. We must find a way to be rid of the rule of God's Messiah, they say to themselves. Thus they cannot rest or be at peace until they achieve this aim. Notice in verse 1 it says that they are also devising Devising is the idea of that word is thinking, meditating, or plotting. The peoples are scheming for a good way to nullify or overthrow the rule of God's appointed king. Psalmist, though, you may notice from verse 1, he notes these actions of men in question form. Why are they doing these things? There's an implication there. The peoples do not realize that their raging efforts make no sense and are in vain. It's not just the common people, however, because verse 2 says that kings and rulers are also standing against the Messiah, the anointed of God. Great men, those with power, wealth, influence, they also take counsel, plot, consult together, and determine to stand as one against God's anointed. The end of verse 2 says they not only stand against God's Messiah, but against the Lord himself. The word translated the Lord there in those small capitals in your Bible. That's just the way our Bibles indicate the Hebrew name Yahweh, which sounds like the Hebrew for he is. It is a reference to God's self-declaration in Exodus 3 of his eternal self-existence and self-sufficiency when he said, I am who I am. According to verses 1 and 2 then, king and commoner all over the world are united in one purpose, ruler and ruled, strong and weak, determined together to fight against God and against God's Messiah. And we hear their rallying cry in verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords. We don't want the rule of God or his Messiah. Let's cast off their yoke. Let's gain independence from them. We will no longer subject ourselves to their rule. These are quite brazen acts and words. This is wickedly bold to not only oppose the Messiah, but Yahweh himself. One must ask why. Why do the peoples of the world want to do this? Why do they resent the rule of God and his Messiah so much? Well, why does anyone desire rebellion against a ruler? Is it because they do not, or is it not because they don't like the way the ruler rules? We hate this king, they say in their hearts. For his burdensome laws and his harsh commands, he's an oppressor, a tyrant. He does not desire our good. He wants to take from us all that we enjoy and love. We therefore want to throw off his shackles and be free to enjoy our lives without him. 
Yet how can one say such things about God or God's Messiah? The scriptures abundantly demonstrate God's good works and character. He is a good God. Did not God create the world and deserve obedience from his creations to whom he gave life? Did not God make the world very good when he created it, without death, futility, or sin? Does not God sustain all men even now and give to them the things that they need for every day of life? He provides all the earth with food. He sends the rain. He causes the sun to continue to warm mankind. He gives companionship. He gives us meaningful work. He gives marriage. He gives many other gifts to men, to mankind. God even gives people the opportunity to come and be at peace with him and have a happy relationship with him. God's actions have demonstrated himself to be good, but God has also declared his heart. The scriptures tell us again and again that God loves justice. He hates evil. He will not let evildoers go unpunished, but he will enact vengeance and vindication for the righteous. He protects and he saves the oppressed. He is only ever truthful. He is eternal, glorious, faithful, compassionate, merciful, and wise. There is no fault in God. Everything that is good has its origin in him. And God's son, the Messiah, he is of the same divine essence. God's king is also perfect in glory, in righteousness, in kindness, in justice, in knowledge, in truth. Everything that the father is, the son is. So why? Why do the peoples and rulers of the earth despise Yahweh and his Messiah so much? Why was this true in David's time when he wrote this psalm? Why was this true in Jesus' time when he came? And why is this still true now? Well, there can only be one answer, and it's the same one that the Bible gives elsewhere. It's because people are evil. Mankind, all people, they are sons of the devil and not sons of God. They love darkness and hate the light, as Jesus says in John 3.19. They practice lawlessness and don't want their evil deeds reproved or exposed. It's actually the very goodness of God and of his Christ that mankind cannot stand. Mankind would rather continue in slavery to sin and suffer sin's curse than embrace God or his king as master. This is why man rebels. He rebels angrily, frantically, openly, secretly, with constant scheming and counsel, united together in the goal to oppose and overthrow God and his Messiah. But you may say, surely this is not the case. I know many kind and good people in the world. Well, to that I must say, not every rebel is an open one. Many are secret rebels, putting up a front of righteousness when truly their deeds are corrupt, with pride, with love of man's approval, love of self. Some hope to do enough good works to placate God, to keep him off their backs so that they can then live their own way. But this too is rebellion. 
It's just another form of rebellion. Such persons still do not want to acknowledge God's Messiah as their rightful ruler in every aspect of their lives. Such people still, when you get down to it, they love idols instead of the true God. They prefer the treasures of the world more than the treasures of Christ. And if one still wishes to protest and say, no, that cannot be, well, God categorically declares this to be the case in his word. All men are rebels. Psalm 14, Psalm 14, verses 2 to 3 says, Yahweh has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah the prophet adds, Isaiah 53, 6, the beginning part, Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Yes, even we religious people, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Man has always rebelled against God and his king. And the psalmist prophesies that they will continue to do so, even in the last days of the earth, as the book of Revelation also says. But what about you listening today? Do you love and obey God's Messiah with all your heart? Or do you still love and obey yourself? He's not really the king, you're the king. Maybe you'll follow God and Jesus when it's convenient or when it makes sense to you. But ultimately, you're committed to your own way and your own desires above all. Well, if the latter is true, then know that you have wickedly joined with the world in its rebellion against God's good Messiah. That should give you pause. For a little while... This rebellion may seem strong, promising. After all, the peoples have made careful plans, according to verses 1 to 3. They've banded together. They've enlisted the support of great men. But the psalmist has already hinted to us that this worldwide rebellion is doomed folly. It's absolute foolishness. And the psalmist explains why in his second reason, the second reason that we must do homage to the Son. This is verses 4 to 6. Number 2. The Father easily confounds man's rebellious plans. The Father easily confounds man's rebellious plans. Let's reread verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Notice in verse 4, the laughter and scoffing of God as he notices the raging, rebellious machinations of mankind. It makes him laugh. You know, surprising fact, the only instance that the Bible records where we have God laughing is when God sees man's ridiculous pride and sinful plans. You see this here, you see this in Psalm 37, you see this in Psalm 59. The only thing the Bible records is making God laugh is man's sinful, prideful rebellion. 
Why does God laugh contemptuously so against man's rebellious plans? Well, notice the first part of verse 4. One reason is location. God is in heaven. Man is on the earth. Man is a finite creature. God is transcendent and powerful. Therefore, how can man who cannot even enter heaven hope to overcome the God of heaven? That's a silly plan. Furthermore, man plots, thinking he can outwit God and that God will not see or know the rebellious schemes that man has connected, but God is in heaven. He sees it all. God essentially says, I know everything that you're doing. I know your rebellion. I know what's really going on. I see your pretense and hypocrisy. You thought you could deceive me? I see it all plainly. You are totally exposed. Also notice verse 4 says that God sits in heaven. Man is raging and rushing and scheming and trying to find a way to defeat God's purposes and secure independence. But God just sits, enthroned, calm, confident, not worried at all about what man is planning. God doesn't even need to react right away, which man, of course, takes, man, of course, takes God's inaction as a sign of man's impending success. Aha, see, I told you we'd get away with it. God hasn't done anything. He's not going to do anything. Our rebellion is going to succeed. Wrong. It's just that God is completely confident in his own wisdom and power, and he's waiting for the perfect time to act. Speaking of power, the difference of power between man and God is so vast that any kind of rebellion, even rebellion led by kings or consisting of every nation on the earth, still to God, is laughable. Look at verse 5 again. God sits confidently in heaven because... What is it that God has already purposed to do? Verse 5 says that he will simply speak to the rebels. He will speak to them in his anger. God won't throw thunderbolts. He won't send fire. He won't swing a sword. He won't unleash missiles. He won't send out any of his angels. None of that's mentioned here. God's planned response to man's rebellion is simply to speak in his holy anger against man. And what will God declare? Tells us in verse 6. I have installed my king on Mount Zion. That is, I have put my king in Jerusalem in the prophesied place of Messiah's rule. The I in verse 6 is emphatic in the Hebrew, which is brought out of the New American Standard 95 translation with the phrase, as for me. So God's plan is to tell mankind, I, just me, myself, I have already firmly established that my son Jesus will be installed on Mount Zion. Just thought I'd mention that. And notice back in verse 5, what is the result of this simple, indignant declaration of God to mankind? Absolute terror. According to verse 5, the word of Adonai, the Lord, the Master, it paralyzes mankind with fear. 
God's simple word is enough to make all the rebellious plans of mankind useless. God simply has to declare, I set up my king, and that's it. Man has no recourse. He's stupefied, stunned. His schemes come to a screeching halt. But this shouldn't surprise us. In Genesis, God spoke the earth into creation, into existence, which means God can speak earth and any part of it out of existence. God can cause creation to do whatever he wants by a simple word or command. Isaiah 55 says that God's word never goes out and comes back void. Indeed, God's word is terrifyingly powerful. It never fails to be obeyed, no matter the command from God. Be made, be unmade. Be prosperous, be ruined. Be alive, be destroyed. All instantly accomplished by God. So if just the mere announcement of Messiah's kingship in Zion is enough to send the rebels to flight, how can one not laugh at the supposedly ingenious plans of mankind to oppose, to escape from, or to depose King Jesus? And considering our own situation, if the Father easily confounds man's rebellious plans, shouldn't you also stop rebelling and do homage to the Son? And it's not simply that God will make an announcement. God has already made an announcement that further guarantees the total submission of the whole world to God's Christ, as we see in the next section. The third reason that you must do homage to the Son appears in verses 7 to 9. This is number three. The Son testifies, He will rule all. The Son testifies, He will rule all. Let's reread these verses. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Notice the shifts in voice in these verses. Now, the Son, Messiah himself, speaks to us. The Son declares a decree, an unchangeable proclamation from Yahweh God himself. And what is this decree? It has three parts. Yahweh first declares the Messiah to be his Son. You are my son, he says. Today I have begotten you. After that, you may scratch your head for a moment. Wait, does this statement mean that Messiah, God's son, had a, begetting, had a beginning? There was a day in which he was begotten? Well, no, not at all. This decree is not given at Messiah's coronation. In fact, the timing of this decree is not stated here anywhere. It just happened sometime before. And based on other scriptures, the best understanding of the timing of this decree, at least as applied to Jesus, is not a specific point in history, but in the unfathomable space of eternity past. Though, of course, the decree did become manifest to the world in history. It was declared, it was given in eternity. Because you see, the Son is eternally begotten. We've talked about this in John recently. 
The Son is one with and of the same essence of the Father, yet distinct from the Father. And the Son, He came from and was begotten of the Father, yet there was no time in which the Son did not exist or was not begotten. He's always been the Son begotten of the Father. Now, that's a wondrous mystery to be sure. We believe it because the Bible declares it. And just as the Son was eternally begotten, so the the decree declaring His begottenness is eternal. It is outside of time. It is before time. But what is significant then? What is significant about this eternal announcement of divine sonship and begottenness? Well, it affirms that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. To be the Son of God means also to be God, which is what the Jews of Jesus' day well understood and resented very much about Jesus. They didn't like that he claimed to be God. But this decree here in verse 7, this first part of it, it also affirms the fitness of Jesus the Son to rule the whole world. After all, after all <clears throat> a royal son receives whatever belongs to his royal father. All the universe belongs to the Father. Therefore, total rule of the universe is also the Son's, Messiah's Son's right by inheritance. But how is this rule bestowed on the Son? Not just by right, but by request. The second part of the decree we see in verse 8. The Father tells the Son, Ask for me the kingdom? and I will freely bestow it all. Notice the great boundaries of this kingdom, according to verse 8. Messiah will have dominion of the nations, not just Israel, but the Gentile nations too, even to the ends of the earth. Messiah's kingdom inheritance will be over the whole world. All nations, all peoples will be subjected to him whenever he requests it. But you may say, but we've already seen from the first part of the psalm, the nations have rejected Messiah's kingship over them. What is to be done? Well, God is not thwarted in the slightest, nor is Messiah the least bit stymied. And if in verses 4 to 6, the word of the Father terrified the rebels, that would have been enough. But verse 9, the third part of the Father's decree, says that Messiah himself will soon break his enemies with a rod of iron. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that Christ's scepter of rule will come smashing down upon his enemies like heavy iron. With the result that all rebels will be broken to pieces like an earthen pot is shattered by iron. You see, this psalm is declaring, and other scriptures agree, there's... No successful underground resistance to Messiah. Certainly not in the future. When the kingdom is bestowed on God's Son, there will be no guerrilla war. There will be no army to continually battle King Jesus. No, Christ rules with an iron scepter. He will find out every one of his enemies and destroy them. But you say... Jesus is the gentle lamb. Surely he will not act with such violence. Jesus is the lamb of God. 
and he meekly came to suffer and to save sinners. And that's the truth that we celebrate especially around Christmas time. But Jesus is not just the lamb. He is also the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who will one day come to rule. And when he does, he will not show any mercy to his adversaries. When the kingdom of God's Messiah comes, there will be no more patience, no more compassion, no more the gentle leading or the prodding staff of the shepherd. Instead, there will be the iron scepter of absolute and invincible sovereignty. All enemies of of Messiah will be in that day suddenly and totally crushed. If you are even partially in rebellion to Jesus right now, you should be afraid of his iron scepter. But maybe someone will say, well, surely I will escape. Surely I will escape the anger of Christ and my rebellion will go unnoticed. Hopefully. Don't kid yourself. Instead, consider the testimonies given in God's Bible, clearly proving that you cannot resist God and win. You cannot somehow escape God's holy and wrathful gaze. In the days of Noah... God brought a sudden and catastrophic flood on an unsuspecting yet rebellious world. And only eight people were saved. In the days of Lot, God brought down fire from heaven on a naive and licentious city and its surrounding towns. Only three people were spared from that judgment. In the days of Moses, Joshua, David, and Hezekiah, Gentile nations fought against Israel with massive armies. They withstood sieges from Israel in in seemingly impregnable fortresses. Yet those heathen armies were annihilated, and their supposedly impregnable fortresses were cast down and overthrown. In the days of Jesus' birth, as we read earlier in this service, wily Herod thought he could discover Christ's birthplace so that he might murder the baby Messiah. He schemed. He acted. But though Herod massacred many innocent boys, God protected his Messiah, and Herod perished in paranoia. At the end of Jesus' ministry, the Jews and Gentiles united together to put God's Son to death and were seemingly successful. Finally, we're rid of the rule. But the triumph, as we know from the scriptures, it was turned into a humiliating defeat because Jesus rose again from the grave and later ascended to the right hand of God. Of course, the ultimate example of futile resistance for all of us to consider is what is prophesied for the future. We see it in part here but we get a more explicit, we get a more specific prophecy in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, 11 to 21, we don't have time to read it now, but that passage, John speaks by the Spirit of God, he foretells the most literal manifestation of man's rebellion against God's Messiah. And what's that? It's when in the plains of Armageddon, the rulers and armies of the earth gather to do literal battle 
with Christ as he returns from heaven. I mean, how more foolish can you be? You're going to turn your weapons upon God's Son? What is the result of this battle? This future outright war against Messiah Jesus? Revelation says, it's a slaughter of all Messiah's enemies. He strikes them down with what? A word. From the sword of his mouth, he strikes them down, the scriptures say. He just has to speak. And his enemies are slaughtered, and their bodies are not even buried. That should sober us. If any of you are openly or secretly remaining in rebellion against the Lord and his Christ, that is your fate. It is to be found out, judged, and eternally destroyed by Messiah. You will be struck down at the command of Christ, and then afterwards you will be judged at the great white throne for your sin, your whole record recounted and put on display. And then you will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever according to God's holy anger and justice. As I said, there is no successfully resisting Messiah. You cannot fight against God and win. God has indeed irreversibly decreed that Messiah's rule will be established totally upon the earth. Philippians 2.10 says, Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believe this testimony from the Son about the Father's decree. The Son, Jesus, will surely rule all. How then should you respond? How should you respond to this awesome and yes, fearful revelation about the Messiah? Well, it's like I said to you at the beginning. You must do homage to the Son from your heart. Do homage to the Son. For this is what the psalmist himself urges as part of the application section of his song. We see this in verses 10 to 12. Let's read those verses again now. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice that these words are addressed to a specific group, to the world's kings and judges. There's an argument from the greater to the lesser here. If the most powerful and influential are instructed 
to humble themselves, to surrender to God while they can, well, then surely the weaker, the common people like you and I must do that as well. Notice the word discernment in verse 10. David, the psalmist, urges the rulers of the earth to act in discernment, show wisdom, act in light of reality, in light of the fact that God's Messiah cannot be successfully opposed. What does it mean to surrender, to stop rebellion? Verses 11 and 12 show us. It means first to worship and rejoice in Yahweh. God is great and has done great things. Give him the praise and the honor and the obedience that he deserves. Let him be your treasure, not the idols of the world. Love the Lord, for he is good. Seek out his commands to do them. Repent of every old and evil way and commit to following God's way in everything. As soon as you discover, oh, this is what God wants me to do, you say, that's what I want to do. Because he's the king. No longer delight yourself in sin, but delight yourself in God. Surrender means you come to worship God as you ought. And this is to be done, according to verse 11, with reverence, with trembling. The word for reverence can also simply be translated as fear. You are to worship and serve God with fear. Now, yes, there is a respect for his power and judgment in that fear, but the holy fear that the Bible talks about, this is not, this is not talking about the craven trembling that you might have even after repentance, saying, oh, I hope God still doesn't smite me even though I've sought refuge in him. We're not talking about that. We're talking about that realization that conviction that God is transcendent, eternal, and mighty. There is no one like him. He is a consuming fire. I must take him and his words seriously. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's that affectionate reverence with which he is due. Ending your rebellion means coming to worship. It means embracing that holy fear. It also means doing homage to the Son. You see that in verse 12. The phrase is literally in the Hebrew, kiss the Son. Though the New American Standard 95 translators have sought to give us the sense of what this kiss means. Kissing a sovereign can be a sign of loyalty, allegiance, devotion, kind of doing homage. But a kiss can also be a sign of making peace, engaging in worship, showing affection. Really, all of those should become our new attitude towards God, the Son. You are to give your full loyalty and devotion to Jesus. Don't keep any for yourself in your own way. It's all His. Make peace with Him. Give Him the praise, the worship, and obedience that He deserves. Become like Him. Love Him. Love Him for the holy and loving King He is. For there truly is no king like King Jesus. A king who laid aside, who temporarily, temporarily laid aside the dazzling glory of God to become man. Yes, even a baby. To save you and me from our sins. 
King Jesus grew up and lived a perfectly righteous life. He allowed himself to suffer rejection from his rebellious people, and he died a humiliating death on a cross, bearing the wrath of God so that he might rescue all those who believe in him, save them once and for all. For any men to be saved, you must understand, their blasphemous rebellion against God must be punished. Someone's got to pay for it. God's perfect justice always needs satisfaction. But Jesus willingly, King Jesus willingly offered himself as that just payment. He suffered the full wrath of God against sin that you are supposed to suffer. Again, why? So that those who trust in Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, those who do homage to Jesus, those who really come and devote themselves to Jesus might have their sins completely paid for and might be forever clothed in Jesus' own perfect righteousness and thereby inheriting eternal life. King Jesus did that for sinners like you and me. Jesus' sacrifice was, of course, accepted by the Father, and Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, where he sits now, or where he is now, where he waits now at the right hand of the Father until God bestows upon him all nations of the world as his inheritance. No king in history is like King Jesus. No king has been so good, so humble, so compassionate, so holy. And today, this king, yes, via this text, via the words of my mouth, He invites you to come be at peace with him and do homage to him. If Jesus is not yet your Savior and Lord, won't you take him up on his outstandingly gracious offer? Stop your rebellion. Stop your senseless raging and striving. Stop trying to earn peace with God by your own efforts, or trying to secure salvation by yourself. Come to the Son. Take Him as your substitute. Give up your own way. Take up the yoke of His way upon yourself, an easy and light yoke. Jesus says in John, or Jesus says through John in 1 John 5, 3, His commandments are not burdensome. They are good, they are wise, they are life-giving. Those who truly have come to know Jesus, they more and more want to follow Jesus' commands because they love Jesus. Of course, it's not that keeping Jesus' commands saves you. Rather, keeping Jesus' words is the proof, the witness as to whether you've come and believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior at all. Because you've been saved, you look to obey, not to be saved. So, I would be remiss if I don't Beg you, as the apostles begged their listeners, on behalf of God, on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God through Christ. It's a free gift. It's an open invitation. Yahweh has given you the opportunity to kiss the Son. Take advantage before it's too late. Because time is running out. There will come a time when God's patience runs dry. Because if you notice in verse 12 again, it says, Do homage to the Son, kiss the Son, or else 
he will become angry. The anger of the Lord, he who has the iron scepter, it will eventually flash forth, and when it does, you will perish. You do not know when that will be. Yes, it will be at his coming, but for you it might be before then. It says here, his wrath may soon be kindled. How soon is soon? I don't know. His patience could run out for you today. Christ could come back this very hour to begin his judgment on the world. Tonight, you may have a sudden medical crisis and die. God demanding your soul from you. You cannot wait. You cannot wait until it's too late to make peace. Don't delay any longer. There's danger in waiting, but there's also such a gracious invitation already open to you. Come and do homage to the Son. Come and make peace. Know that in doing so, you not only protect yourself from God's overwhelming wrath, which is upon you right now as we speak, if you have not come and done homage to the Son, you not only protect yourself, but you also, in coming to Jesus, you secure for yourself the highest happiness. Look again at the end of verse 12. It says, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does that mean? Well, first of all, who's the him? That's the son. That's Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only rescue from the wrath of God. If you come to Jesus, he is your refuge. And you become blessed. What does blessed mean? Well, it means happy or fortunate. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist urges in another place. Rejoice in the Lord. Coming to Jesus means your gladness. When you stop being a rebel and you make Jesus your king, Jesus is no longer your enemy, but now your advocate, your savior, your provider, your protector, your help, your rest, your friend. He imparts his own joy and peace to you. He's so good when he makes peace with you. He even intimately discloses himself to you. Let me show you how good I am. Truly, as the Apostle Paul says, there's no greater joy in life than to know Jesus. Indeed, you are blessed if you take refuge in him because he's the source of all life and joy. And you can see the great contrast in verse 12. It fits with what Romans 11.22 says. There's such a difference in attitude towards, in God towards those who are reconciled and those who are not. To those who stubbornly follow sin and won't come to do homage to King Jesus, they experience God's blistering severity. But to those who come, who love and follow Christ, well, they experience God's abounding kindness. He's a God who's eager to be generous, to bestow life on all who come to him. 
You know, it's true that God came humbly and gently on that first Christmas night to bring peace to the earth, but only in this sense. God was providing the world with the one and only way to be reconciled to him. It was not peace automatically to everyone. It was a way of peace now open to everyone. If you reject King Jesus, Christmas is not an announcement of your salvation and joy, but in reality of your doom, your damnation. So for the sake of wisdom, for the sake of happiness this morning, for the sake of life, eternal life, do homage to the Son. Of course, that is an exhortation for any of you who do not belong to Jesus Christ or are continuing in rebellion against him. But if you do belong to Jesus Christ, notice the great comfort, the teaching of this psalm gives to you. You have been made reconciled to God. You need not fear the iron scepter of Messiah. It's actually your comfort. You have done homage to the Son. You've been made his beloved citizen, even his fellow heir. And you have a sure and eternally secure refuge in your Lord. Moreover, you know, you now know that the world's rebellions against Christ will not succeed. We see this discouraging us all the time, right? We see our brethren being persecuted all over the world. We see Jesus being opposed and blasphemed. We see the commands of God repudiated even by enshrining in laws that make sins protected rights. It's disheartening to see such evil and injustice. But David says, the Spirit says through David, take comfort, friends. This rebellion will not succeed. The Messiah will not be overcome. All evil will be recompensed and God's own will be rescued and vindicated. At the right time, Christ will come to establish his kingdom and every knee will bow to him. The nations truly rage in vain. Do not be disheartened. And as I alluded to already, take comfort in this. Now, when Christ reigns, and it is promised here that he will reign, you know what? So will you. Revelation 20, verse 4 says that when Christ destroys his enemies at Armageddon, the dead in Christ will be raised up, and they will rule with Christ for a thousand years. Even in the eternal state, the scripture says God's people will reign with the Son. Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5, describes the new Jerusalem, the capital city of this eternal state. Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. What incredible grace is this? Not only that we should be spared by the Son, but that we should be with Him, serve Him, and rule with Him forever. Truly, there is no king like King Jesus. Praise God for sending such a king into the world. 
Let us, therefore, worship him and do homage to him like the wise men did. And let us look forward in joyful and holy expectation to our king's soon return. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, how magnificent you are. How glorious is King Jesus, a king who did not come the way that people expected and yet came in a way more glorious than we could possibly have imagined. Who is a king like you, Jesus? Who lays down his life for his rebellious citizens like you do? Rebellious subjects. And you make them into no longer enemies, but friends, even fellow inheritors. What amazing, abundant kindness, but Lord, we must be aware of your severity. You are a king whose rule will be established, and those who remain in stubborn rebellion will be judged. How fearful is your judgment according to this word. You are the gentle lamb, but you also are the fierce lion. So God, I pray that your work of conviction would happen today as a result of this message. Lord, that your people will be encouraged to follow after you more zealously. But Lord, those who are playing with sin, who are still stubbornly sticking to their own way, that they would fear and they would seek peace terms with the Messiah. You are a holy God not to be trifled with. But how great is your amazing invitation towards salvation. It's free. It's free to anyone who will give up his sin. And it is so abundant. Lord, glorify yourself by saving and sanctifying people today. In Jesus' name, amen.